Welcome to the introductory episode of Gen X Pastor. This podcast will examine many types of stories based on faith and religion. There are so many bizarre, shocking, and some unbelievable things that have all happened in the name of God or whatever higher power one believes in. I want to take the time to share these stories with you and that they are fascinating, but even more than that, maybe there's something we can take from each happening that will make us open our minds our hearts, and even address things that might be happening in our own lives that need to be talked about. I want to start off with a formal introduction and why this podcast is even called Gen X Pastor, as well as give you an idea of the feel of what these shows will be like. So pour yourself a drink. Mine is a gin and tonic. Get comfortable and let's get into it. This is my story. I was terrified. I was in the back seat looking out the window, watching what was happening in the clouds. It was an unusually hot Sunday afternoon and there was a charge in the air, the kind where you knew something was going to happen. I could feel the wind suddenly turn cool as the sky took on an ominous green hue in a matter of minutes. I looked up to see the clouds swirling around like a river full of currents that you know could take you down and send you downstream before you had the chance to think. I looked at my mom and dad, driving along without a care in the world, simply saying they hope they make it home before the storm hits. How do they do it? How could they be so calm? I looked up again to see the angry-looking clouds and almost cried out, Was I ready? How could I be sure? How could my parents be unafraid? I was afraid to blink because I worried that when I opened my eyes back up, that they would be gone. can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Go tell that long-tongued liar, go and tell that midnight rider, tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter, I was born in Waukegan, Illinois, and spent only a few years living in Zion, just a few miles away from Chicago, when it was decided that we would move to a small southeastern Missouri town on the border of Arkansas called Cooter. Yes, Cooter. I went to Cooter High School and consider myself a Cooter Wildcat alumni. Look it up. It's really there. It was quite a culture shock already, just leaving a suburb of Chicago to a small town that felt like it was in the middle of nowhere, with a population of only about 400. It wasn't a town of wealth or opportunity or even much to do. I was never sure why we left what I considered home to move to a place like that, other than maybe it was a family reason since I had new cousins and an aunt and uncle to get to know. One of my first memories of realizing that I was definitely in a new culture was when I was playing with my cousins, and I simply made a comment about being a robot. Although with my still intact northern accent, the word came out robot. 
my cousin stopped playing and turned to look at me as if I'd set myself on fire. Ooh, I'm telling. I was completely bewildered. Did they not have robots in southeastern Missouri? What I was missing was that they heard the word, but. I still did not see the problem with this until my aunt came up and said that we don't talk like that around here. It wasn't long before I found out why we didn't talk like that around here. My southern family were all members of a small country Pentecostal church in Tyler, Missouri. While we lived in Zion, I don't remember a time where we attended a church on a regular basis. But when we came to Missouri, we rarely missed a service. So to add to the culture shock, I was also now presented with the fact that God was all around me, everywhere, all the time, watching me. There was a service one Sunday morning, and I remember really enjoying the music. I'd always been a huge music fan and fully intended of being a songwriter and playing in a band like my uncles did when I got old enough. The piano player and the bassist had taken an old song out of the revered red-backed hymnal that was at every pew and had put a frantic tempo on it as the choir situated behind the pulpit repeated the chorus over and over again. I couldn't help but smile and clap along to the beat. Just as I was about to think I could get used to this, the wife of the pastor began to scream. I reflexively went to the floor. I imagined nerves of steel no longer what they used to be and peered out from underneath the bench we were sitting on in time to see her feet fly past me as she began to run up and down the center aisle. I slowly stood up, expecting to see everyone either filing out or attacking whatever monstrous thing that the pastor's wife was fleeing from. But as I looked around, nothing had really changed. It was as if they didn't even see her. The musicians even turned it up as the choir sang louder. I looked up at my mom, and she was just smiling and raising her hands in the air. When she saw me about to freak out, she just put her hand on my back for a moment as if to say, everything is okay. I was not comforted by this explanation. After several minutes, the song finally ended as the pastor began to talk about the Holy Ghost showing up as his wife lay slumped down on the floor crying while several people sat around her, again with hands in the air speaking in some language I'd never heard. The pastor didn't preach a sermon at this service. It was just more music, running, screaming, people on the floor, and the strange language that a lot of people at the church, even my own family, spoke. I was later told that one can be baptized by the Holy Ghost, and the way you know that it's happened was when the Holy Ghost spoke through you in a different language. At that time, being possessed by something called a ghost was just as scary sounding as the Exorcist movie. There was a lot of things ahead of me that I would learn, but the main focus of the pastor and all the members of the church was what ref they referred to as the rapture. The basic idea is that there would be a time when Jesus would appear in the clouds, and at the sound of a trumpet, everyone who had accepted Jesus in their heart by confessing their sins and asking him to forgive them, would suddenly disappear from the earth and join Jesus in the clouds, 
avoiding the seven-year tribulation period that would happen for those left behind. It would be during the seven years that God would pour out his wrath on mankind, and at the end, if you survived, you would be asked to either take the mark of the beast, which was the number 666 stamped across your forehead, or if you didn't, they would chop your head off, at which time you would be able to enter into heaven with the rest of the Christians. The recurring message of you better be ready all the time, and Jesus will return like a thief in the night, in the blink of an eye, and break through the clouds in the eastern sky, kept me in a state of panic. There was also the message of backsliding, which meant you had to ask for forgiveness all over again if you sinned after you were considered saved from damnation. And being that saying the robot word wrong meant that I needed to recheck my status with Jesus or else left me in a continuous state of confession. For many years, I kept this relationship with Jesus out of fear of eternal damnation until I just couldn't keep it up anymore. I had become a teenager, and there was no way to keep sin out of my mind now that all the girls had things to look at. I began to think more about what was happening in my current life rather than what was going to happen after I died. The worry that the return of Jesus could happen at any minute had finally wore off after so many years of prayer sessions during every thunderstorm. Being a frightened child in the back seat of cars were over. Now there were cars to drive, drinks to drink, and girls to try and talk to. God began to take a back seat to me while I tried to figure out who I was without watching for him over my shoulder. graduated in 1991, I decided to be a really good sinner. I did anything that crossed my mind now that I had my independence. I wore flannel, a backward Pearl Jam hat, wrote sad songs with music full of angst, and played in bands. I even made an epic trip across the country with my best friend to the mecca of grunge music, the holiest of holies, Seattle, Washington. I fully embraced what it was like to be a Gen Xer, and I loved it drinking black coffee, imported beer, a pack of Camel Lights, some not-yet-mainstream grunge rock in the background, while me and my friends discussed philosophy for hours. Everything seemed perfect except that I felt alone. And before long, there was a girl. We didn't date very long, a few weeks actually, before I saw a chance to go back to Seattle, where I was convinced everything would be perfect. She liked to paint, and I was a musician, and I had it all figured out. We'd work in a coffee shop in Pioneer Square during the day and sell her paintings, and I would play music at night at a small bar. But as you can guess, it didn't happen. We only got as far as Wyoming. We had decided to run away since she was 18, and had never been away from Blyville, Arkansas, a city about 15 miles south from Cooter. She said her family was too strict on her, and she was tired of it. I saw it as a chance to try to get back to what I referred to as home, even though I'd only spent a few weeks in the Emerald City. 
We had to stop in Wyoming because funds were getting low. The plan was to stay a little while, work and save money, then continue on to Seattle. We had gotten married in Wyoming as well. Her family was as religious as mine, and she said she would feel better if we were legal, and at the time I didn't see a reason not to. We went to a lawyer's office and in an unglamorous ceremony became man and wife, recognized by the state and God. It took our first Thanksgiving of fish sticks and two big gulps from 7-Eleven to make her homesickness come to completion. I finally gave in and we made the trek back home not knowing that we would be in the first blizzard that the southern route through Arizona and Texas had seen in years. I took it as a sign from God that I was going the wrong way, but we pressed through and finally made it back home. So I tried twice to live in Seattle and had to come back each time. The band I was playing in back home wasn't around anymore, and my friends had scattered to different places, making their way into new lives after high school. I felt alone. I felt empty, and the excitement of life, thinking about being the guy from high school that left and made it as a musician in the big city, seemed to fade further away. This also took its toll on the marriage as well as the fact that we didn't make a good match once we got to know each other. And even though I thought it was over, my upbringing wouldn't allow me to go after a divorce but to try and make it work. What God had put together let no man put us under, and all that. In an effort to make the marriage work, we decided at the request of her mother to attend church. It was the same denomination as the old country church I used to attend, but this place was different. There were a lot more people, and there wasn't as much screaming, running, and Holy Ghost-inspired monologues. But even more so, I heard something different than the whole waiting-for-God-to-drop-the-hammer type messages. This pastor talked about making a difference in our community, feeding those who are hungry, giving to the less fortunate, being like Jesus. To an empty and lost soul, this got my attention. It made sense. And it was something that I could throw myself into that was actually worth doing. After much prayer and consideration, I decided that I was supposed to be a minister. It felt good, and I could picture myself doing it. I told the pastor what I was feeling, and after a required internship training program that my wife and I both had to go through, a third member of staff was created, and I was voted in as Christian Education Director. I had my own office, and I would be spending my days doing I didn't even know what yet, but it would be to make the world a better place in the name of Jesus. My initial time as newest minister of the largest church of God in Arkansas was amazing. I still had a lot to learn, but I was anxious to get started in this line of work. I'd found an identity. My purpose had finally been revealed and I was going to give 150% to it. But after the first few weeks, I began to see that there was a different side to ministry that I wasn't even aware of. It didn't sit right. 
but I was so excited about being a minister that I thought I would just get used to things. If it was wrong, how could pastors be doing it, right? But it was the first thing that the pastor told me about that just didn't feel right, and I couldn't shake it off. But I did as I was told. It had to do with the expense account that the pastor, the associate pastor, and now myself would have. He gave me this example of how to determine what a ministry expense was. He said rather than get a subscription for the newspaper and have it brought to his house, he would drive to the other side of the city, buy a newspaper, and drive back charging the mileage to the expense account. He said he had to be up on current events to effectively minister to the congregation through his sermons. He also said that if I went out of town anywhere to stop at a Christian bookstore, buy some book or curriculum, and charge it and the mileage to the ministry expense. Even if I was on vacation, I could still charge it as a ministry expense since I bought that one item. The ministry expense was in addition to my salary, as well as the other two pastors. Even though it seemed dishonest in my mind, I decided it had to be the way things worked and just went along with it. It wasn't long before the assistant pastor decided to leave. Not just the church, but the city. He never got into reasons why much, but he did indicate that a lot of it was based on being overwhelmed and frustrated with the church and the pastor. There was so much that I didn't see, even being right there in the office next door. After he left, I inherited his job as well and became the associate pastor, Christian education director, music minister, youth and children's department director, website developer, radio engineer for our radio station we broadcasted our services from, groundskeeper, Sunday school teacher, special services for holidays director, hospital visitor, funeral and wedding attender, and anything else that needed to be done. I spent a lot of hours at the church, usually seven days a week. I was on call all the time as well, and it wasn't unusual to get a phone call or someone show up at the door at 2.30 in the morning. All of this, and there was very little of what I thought I would be doing as a pastor. We had a lot of programs and outreach, but it all felt fake, as if we weren't trying to minister more than we were trying to gain new members. The passion was gone after the new wore off, and I began to view church as the business that it was. At the weekly pastor's prayer meetings that were held at different churches in the city, I would hear the pastors talking afterward. They would just be talking shop about new members, how much money was being brought in, and who was being targeted. There was a day at the office where I was instructed to contact someone who had tried out our church one Sunday. He was a man from Nucor. It was a top-paying job in our area. And the pastor wanted him at our church badly. That same day, a family had stopped by asking for help with an electric bill, which I was told to refuse, and I said, give them donated canned food out of the food pantry. All this time spent at the church wasn't helping the marriage at all. Either I was gone all the time, or she was forced to have to participate in things she didn't want to. In this denomination, both husband and wife were expected to be involved. The pastor had already told me that I needed to talk to my wife more about coming to events that we had. The parishioners had been asking questions, he said. I had finally decided that I was going to have to leave the church. I was completely wore out, and there were too many things that I just felt were wrong with the way things were done. When I walked out the door for the last time, I could feel a very significant amount of weight come off my shoulders. It took a while to get used to clocking in and out for a job again, but I did, and willfully 
blended back into the masses. Glad to be rid of my celebrity status in the city as an associate pastor. The damage to the already dead marriage was severe, and even though the church discouraged it, letting me know that if I got a divorce that I'd never be able to be a minister in the Church of God again, I felt like I was just fine with that. We got divorced, I moved into a small apartment, and picked up where I left off in the early 90s with my sinning. being a full-time sinner. My affinity for strong drink became part of my identity, and after several more failed attempts at moving from the area, I ended up back in a small apartment in full slacker style, playing music, drinking, writing sad songs, and feeling sorry for myself, just like I did in the 90s. It was after a concert I saw of the Jayhawks that I met my wife, Jane. I'd posted a video to Facebook of the finale, and she made a comment on it. After chatting and messaging each other every night afterwards, we met in person at a concert I was doing with my acoustic partner at a small barbecue place in our current hometown of Crothersville, Missouri, just north of Cooter. Our first date was immediately after the show down at the Mississippi River, where we eventually ended up getting married, not even a year later. She has quite a story to tell, but that's one for her to tell. But I can truly say that because of her and her son Leo and our dog Star, Black Betty the Cat and Betty's Twins Batman and Minnie, I found myself somewhere between the flannel-wearing grunge sinner and the pastor I wanted to be before I became an ex-pastor. A Gen X pastor, if you will. The reason I wanted to do this podcast is to talk about some of the things that people, ministers, and parishioners alike have done or have had done to them for their faith. Some will be shocking as we look at cults and other religions that have done the unthinkable. Some might just be entertaining and humorous, but all will be a good story. And there will always be something to pull from each story that will make it relatable and maybe help you in your own spiritual life. Please feel free to contact me on my Facebook page, Gen X Pastor, or email me at genxpastor at gmail.com. Featured music in today's podcast was God's Gonna Strike You Down by Johnny Cash, Pentecostal Service by Melvin Harder, Live by Pearl Jam, Waiting for the Sun by the Jayhawks, and Hunger Strike by Temple of the Dog. Be working on the next podcast real soon. Thank you so much for listening. This is Kevin Winstead. The Gen X Pastor. Talk to you all again soon. Bye.